The following podcast is part of a certified educational activity titled Expert Perspectives on Improving Early Recognition and Treatment of COPD with Inhalation Therapy. Access the entire activity and complete the post-test at peerview.com forward slash XVQ 860. Downloadable slides and practice aids are also available. Hello, this is Dr. Reynolds Panetary from the Robert Wood Johnson Medical School and Rutgers Institute for Translational Medicine and Science. Welcome to this educational activity on improving early recognition and treatment of COPD with inhalation therapy. Our goals for today are to employ evidence-based guidelines to provide a timely and accurate diagnosis of chronic obstructive pulmonary disease or COPD create treatment plans for patients with COPD according to evidence-based guidelines with a goal of optimizing therapy to minimize exacerbation risk, decrease hospitalizations, and mitigate symptoms, apply tactics and strategies for shared decision-making to ensure treatment adherence and proper inhaler use. So COPD currently ranks fourth among causes of death worldwide. The World Health Organization estimates that COPD is expected to become the third, the third leading cause of death worldwide by 2030. Challenges that we face, COPD is frequently underrecognized and underdiagnosed. Recent findings show high exacerbation burden experienced by U.S. patients with COPD managed in primary care, and patient adherence to treatment tends to be poor. Patient adherence to treatment tends to be poor, sometimes due to incorrect inhaler technique, sometimes due to burdensome regimens or other reasons. COPD is often missed in primary care. PCP's adherence to the gold guidelines are poor. Less than 60% of providers are shown to be adherent. So what are the barriers to diagnosis of COPD in primary care? We're going to look at this as care provider's domain and the patient domain. So let's look at care providers. We have time limitations, failure to probe at-risk patients about symptoms and activity levels, as well as lack of good case-finding methods, limited spirometry availability and expertise to interpret. So what about from the patient domain? Well, under-recognition of symptoms leading to delayed presentation, poor awareness of COPD, lack of knowledge regarding COPD risk factors, and appropriate diagnostic testing. So at the end of the day, what we're talking about is these two domains lend itself to therapeutic nihilism. So let's look at the estimated mortality associated with the underdiagnosis of COPD. In this graph, on the y-axis, we're looking at survival probability, and on the x-axis, this time, non-COPD over 20 years as a defined mortality. But you can see that undiagnosed COPD and diagnosed COPD has a substantial less survival probability as compared to non-COPD. So what's the takeaway? The takeaway is a significant 
increase in mortality occurs with underdiagnosed COPD or even with diagnosed COPD for that fact. COPD in primary care. Patients who experienced exacerbations in the COPD, RD, and apex COPD registries are shown below. These are two very large registries, and we're looking at the percent of patients on the y-axis in each of the registries, and then the number of exacerbations in a year. And these data are incredibly telling. You can see the dramatic effects of the exacerbations that can occur in these registries over a significant period of time. Now, the greater than three exacerbations are quite low, but they can have a profound effect ultimately on morbidity and mortality of the disease. So let's examine a patient case. This is Patricia. Patricia is a 62-year-old woman who presents complaining of increasing fatigue. She says she realizes that she has had gradual decrease in her activity level and has been struggling more than usual with playing with her grandkids. She notes having a mild daily morning cough for the past three years and that she's had bronchitis once a year for the past two years. She recently quit smoking, but admits to smoking one to two packs per day for about 40 years, or that interprets into 40 or 80 pack years. That's a substantial amount of cigarette smoke. So how do we diagnose COPD? Well, there's really several factors that play a role. You have to have the right symptoms, and that's within the context of risk factors and then spirometry, or objective measures of airflow, spirometry, is required to establish the diagnosis. So what are the symptoms? Dyspnea, shortness of breath, especially with exercise. Chronic cough and sputum are the symptoms patients report. What are the risk factors? Well, in the United States, let's be honest, 85 to 90% of patients with COPD have had tobacco exposure, either primary or secondary. Occupation could put people at risk in indoor and outdoor air pollution, as well as other host factors or genetic predisposition, as we see with alpha-1 antitrypsin. So it's symptoms within the context of the right risk factors, and then spirometry confirming objective measures of airflow. So the clinical indicators for considering a diagnosis of COPD should be using a valid and reliable questionnaire. Consider the diagnosis of COPD and perform spirometry. If any of these clinical indicators are present, then you need to consider the diagnosis of COPD. So what do I mean? Well, let's look at dyspnea. Dyspnea that is progressive, worse with exercise, or persistent. That's a clear context that the dyspnea may be related to COPD with the right risk factors. Don't forget if this is a smoker or former smoker. A recurrent wheeze, a cough that may be intermittent and may be unproductive. Of course, a cough that's productive is also consistent with COPD. Recurrent lower respiratory tract infections. And again, the history of risk factors tobacco smoke, smoke from home cooking and heating fuels, occupational dust, fumes, gases, and other chemicals, and host factors, genetic factors, developmental abnormalities, and so forth. So 
the right symptoms within the context of risk factors really pushes one to make a diagnosis of COPD. Now, there are valid and reliable instruments, and one I show here is the CAPTURE instrument. And the CAPTURE instrument utilizes five questions. Have you ever lived or worked in a place with dirty or polluted air, smoke, secondhand smoke, or dust? Does your breathing change with seasons, weather, or air quality? Does your breathing make it difficult to do activities of daily living that include carry, heavy workload, shovel, dirt or snow, jog, play tennis, or swim? Compared to others your age, do you tire easily? Now, those yes-no questions are very important, and they give one a score. In the past 12 months, how many times did you miss work, school, or other activities because of a cold, bronchitis, or pneumonia? Is that zero, one, or greater than two? So for clinical use, if you have a peak flow meter, you could measure in a simple way liters per minute peak flow. Are you less than 350? Yes, no. Or women, less than 250 liters per minute. So these kinds of questionnaires are clearly helpful in focusing the provider's questions and queries to the patient that would align with the diagnosis of COPD. So every time you consider the diagnosis of COPD, you also have to consider the differential diagnosis of COPD. This slide really shows the common differential diagnoses you will run into when diagnosing COPD. COPD, asthma, congestive heart failure, and bronchiectasis are the common differential diagnoses that mimic COPD. We talked about cigarette smoke. Asthma, you have variable airflow obstruction of family history and early onset may or may not be associated with cigarette smoke. Congestive heart failure, the chest x-ray could be very helpful, showing cardiomegaly or pulmonary edema could also show some volume restriction. And bronchiectasis can be easily confused with chronic bronchitis, where you see large volumes of perial and sputum and commonly associated with bacterial infections. Others, like tuberculosis, obliterative bronchiolitis, or diffuse pan bronchiolitis, can also occur and be a differential diagnosis of COPD. Many of those diseases will require the concomitant imaging or CT scan. So keeping in mind, there is a differential diagnosis to dyspnea, dyspnea and exertion, and we need to be cognizant to rule out these other differential diagnoses. So let's look at spirometry. Here we're looking at the value of comparing normal spirometry versus that with airflow obstruction. Now, this is a spirometric analysis, simple volume time curve. You may not be seeing this if you have your own spirometer. For the most part, we use flow volume loops. But here you can see the demarcation of the normal on the left. This is volume versus time. Patient takes a deep breath and blows out hard. As they expire the air, you can see the total volume goes up. You can measure the FEV1. If the FEV1 is 80% or greater, this is a relatively normal ratio. Now, that could be restrictive or normal lung function. 
On the left side, this is normal lung function. Let's take a look at the obstructed patient. Now, now you can see a profound change in the spirometric analysis volume versus time. Take a deep breath, blow out hard. What you can see is the FEV1 is attenuated. The FVC is attenuated compared to the normal on the left side. The ratio, though, and this is the take-home point, the ratio is less than 80%, suggesting that this is airflow obstruction. Now, it doesn't tell us if it's COPD or asthma or even cystic fibrosis. That requires you in your history to fit the context which we just mentioned. So the GOLD ABE assessment tool allows one to characterize the severity of disease. Now, once you've gone through, made the diagnosis of COPD, excluded differential diagnoses, confirmed the disease by spirometric analysis showing airflow obstruction, and let's assess severity. Well, how do we do that? Well, the ABE assessment tool really characterizes the likelihood of an exacerbation correlated with the FEV1 and post-bronchodilator response. In that middle table, you can see gold one, very unaffected individual with greater than 80% FEV1, gold two, 50 to 79, three, 30 to 49, or gold four, less than 30. Now, the FEV1 doesn't tell the whole story. You need to examine the FEV1 within the likelihood of an exacerbation history. And that is shown in the complicated box on the right side. Greater than or equal to two moderate exacerbations or one hospitalization or more than one puts you in the E category. The zero to one moderate exacerbation really puts you in a different category, and that is where you now correlate the symptoms, highly symptomatic individual versus the non-symptomatic or unsymptomatic patient. But the exacerbation box is very important because that really puts you in a significant severity of disease. So here we have a reiteration of what I just mentioned based on airflow obstruction. And this is always post-bronchodilator FEV1. What do I mean? Well, you give the patient a bronchodilator, then measure the FEV1. It's the best possible FEV1. And you can see the severity of illness characterized as gold one, two, and three, and four as the FEV1 goes down. Obviously, as the patient's severity of disease measured by the airflow obstruction goes down, their morbidity and mortality go up remarkably. So how do we assess dyspnea? Well, again, there's valid and reliable scales, such as the Modified Respiratory Content MRC Dyspnea Scale. MRC grades 0, 1, 2, 3, and 4 are shown here. Very simple questions. I only get breathless with strenuous exercise. Grade 2 with walking or slightly up a hill. Grade two, slower walk than age match controls. I have to stop for breath at my own pace, grade three and four. Grade four, the most extreme, is I get breathless anytime I leave the house or even with dressing and undressing. Obviously, the greatest affected. Now, assessing symptom burden by the CAT test is shown here. I'm very happy. 
and I'm very sad. And this questionnaire, which is really easy to administer, gives a score. And in this instance, the highest the score, the worse you are. And you can see, I'm very sad. I cough all the time. I won't read all of these, but it's a simple administered score at point of care. The higher the score, the worse off you are. And now, what are our goals in managing the disease? Well, there's airflow limitations, symptom burden, exacerbations, and functional limitations. Our goals are a combination of improving lung function, improve symptoms, prevent and manage exacerbations, and improve the quality of life or functional status. We must reduce hospital admissions and mortality. So what do we start with? Well, it's based on severity of illness, right? And this is the ABE. So let's take a look at group A. These are people that are relatively asymptomatic without or only one exacerbation, but not a hospital exacerbation. Very important. Group A, you use bronchodilators alone. And you use a combination bronchodilators if the patient is symptomatic in the group B category, but is not an exacerbator. That's the Lava Lama patient. So again, group A, when do you use a bronchodilator? Relatively asymptomatic patient who may have had zero or one exacerbation. The majority of the patients you see are going to be the group B patients. This is where a combined long-acting beta agonist and a long-acting antimuscarinic agent would be very valuable. The two together are better bronchodilators than either alone. Now, what happens if you have the exacerbator? These are the patients we have to worry about, the group E patients. Here is where I would consider the use of an additional drug on top of lava lama, and that is an inhaled corticosteroid. Now, I target patients who have greater than or equal to 300 eosinophils. Data show that if you have high levels of blood eosinophils now, not speed of blood, and are an exacerbator, then I would consider a lava lama ICS. If you are less than 300 eosinophils, then the lava lama would be indicated. Now, remember, when we're talking about exacerbator, we're talking about greater than two moderate exacerbations. That's a patient who would be on prednisone and antibiotics, for example, or have had a hospitalization. A hospitalization really portends a worse outcome. Need to keep that in mind. So let's go back to Patricia. Remember, Patricia has an MRC score of 2 and a CAT score of 10. Spirometry shows an FEV1 FEC of 56%, and her FEV1 is 52% predicted. Now, she had two exacerbations in the last year, did not lead to a hospitalization. What gold grade would she be? She's an exacerbator, and she would be a B2. So I think the appropriate therapy for her is a lama lava treatment, and that could be via separate inhalers or combined inhalers. What about 
continued management for the stable COPD patients? Well, we always have to review the symptoms, dyspnea scores, and exacerbations. Assess inhaler technique adherence, non-pharmacologic approaches, such as physical rehabilitation, self-management education. Adjust. If the patient's now developed exacerbation history, we need to escalate switch inhaler device or molecules, or de-escalate. The less exposure to medications, less side effects. So this cycle of review, assess, and adjust, keep that in mind because the treatment of COPD is dynamic. The treatment of COPD is dynamic. You know, patients come in, they're stable, always ask the questions or use valid and reliable tools to assess severity, spirometry, adjust, review, and assess. So let's look at follow-up pharmacologic treatment. And if the response to the initial treatment is appropriate, then maintain it. If not, you need to ask very pertinent and important questions. Check adherence. Check inhaler technique. Possibly rule in or rule out comorbidities such as cardiac disease. If the patient has developed exacerbations, then they go from just dyspnea management to the exacerbation management. Now, if they're just dysmic and no exacerbations, it's lava or llama. If they have frequent dyspnea, then the combination of a lava-llama is indicated. If we're still not at target, maybe switching the inhaler device will matter or implement non-pharmacologic treatments like physical rehabilitation and always consider comorbidity. Now, if the patient's developed exacerbations and if the eosinophils are less than 300, you may consider a lava llama if less than 300 and exacerbating, you can go to the lava llama ICS or potentially to refumalast, indicated for chronic bronchitis phenotype FEV1 less than 50%, and or the use of azithromycin, a macrolide antibiotic. If the blood EOs are greater than 300, then I automatically go to the inhaled corticosteroid llama lava triple therapy. So it's really important to assess, evaluate, and adjust depending on the dyspnea and exacerbation history. When to use triple therapy over dual therapy? Well, current available evidence from pivotal randomized controlled trials appears to be sufficient to identify triple therapy as an immediate choice who present for the first time with severe airflow obstruction, less than an FEV1 of 50% and are symptomatic. Patients who have had frequent greater than two moderate to severe exacerbations or a hospitalization absolutely deserves an inhaled corticosteroid. For those with bloody eosinophil counts of greater than 300, consider the ICS, especially in the exacerbator, and patients with significant lung function decline over time. You really want to try to mitigate progression. And those discharged from a hospital after COPD exacerbation is a clear indication for the use of triple therapy. Poor inhaler technique is common in COPD. Typically, these are elderly patients. They may have poor eye-hand coordination, may have significant rheumatoid arthritis. So not all devices 
are perfect. A large portion, 50 to 75% of patients use their inhalers incorrectly. Gold guidelines recommend rechecking inhaler technique in each patient visit. The left side gives you the idea or the notion in a published study of, of how well patients use their meter dose inhaler. And you can see there is significant deficiencies in the use of MDIs. In the dry powder inhalers, there's also challenges. Not holding the device correctly, exhaling through the mouthpiece, and so forth. So no device is perfect. No device is perfect. Another opportunity for shared decision-making. Ask the patient, do they like the dry powder? Do they feel they're getting the medicine? If they don't feel like they're getting the medicine, the likelihood is that they're going to be poorly adherent to therapy. So the consequences of poor adherence to inhaled therapy, this is data from the TORCH study looking at adherence in a large patient population, 6,000 patients. You can see that three-year mortality was cut more than half if people were adherent to their device. Less than, you could see the mortality was substantially higher. 50% of patients with COPD will stop new prescriptions after the first month. Sustained adherence continues to decay over time, and that will lead to poor quality of life, functional status, mortality, increased health care expenditures, and poor symptom control. Again, understanding what's driving the poor adherence. Is it cost? Is it access to medicine? Do I not feel the medicine's working? Are all contributors? The Intrepid study, very important study, looked at single versus multiple inhaler triple therapy for COPD. The single inhaler on visit one and visit two, unusual care, weeks one versus 24. The assessment tool were patient reported outcomes at CAT, COPD exacerbation, historic blood eosinophil count spirometry and safety. And it was assessed over a 24-hour period. Who got into the study if you had a diagnosis of COPD with greater than or equal to one exacerbation and receiving multiple inhaler treatment techniques or combined? So let's take a look at intrepid, responder, non-responder, or missing the CAT test. The missing the CAT test was very small number. But you can see that the triple therapy was very effective in achieving the CAT response. Remember the CAT response, patient reported outcomes. And you can see with multiple inhaler technique on the right side. The bottom line here is that the triple therapy by one inhaler gives a consistent response. Let's return to the patient case, Patricia. Patricia continued to be symptomatic on the LAMA, LAMA therapy, and said that she found using more than one inhaler to be significantly inconvenient. Lab work also revealed bloody eosinophils count of 200 cells per microliter. Patricia is given triple therapy. After one year, she has not had any exacerbations and says that her quality of life has been markedly improved. So Patricia's a success of triple therapy. So what do we do now monitoring and following up? 
In order to adjust therapy appropriately as the disease progresses, follow-up is necessary. Doses of prescribed medicines, adherence and inhaler technique, effectiveness of the current regime and side effects all need to be taken into account and patients asked whether they have any of these difficulties in getting their medicine, adherence, inhaler technique, and their belief that the therapy is helping. Wow, we just covered a lot. But in summary, we need to improve the diagnosis. We covered the goals of COPD management, the value of combination therapy, and shared decision-making. Improving the diagnosis, we try to adhere to the goal guidelines and has been found to be poor. COPD diagnosis is often missed in primary care. High burden experienced by patients diagnosed with COPD managed by primary care means that we strive to improve lung function, symptoms, and health status, and above all, prevent and manage exacerbations. The use of combination therapy, LAMA-LAVA, is recommended for patients who are symptomatic on monotherapy. The addition of an ICS triple therapy are for those of an elevated eosinophil count and exacerbators. Share decision-making. Align your goals with the goals of the patient. Assessing self-management, inhaler technique, access to medicines, which tend to be poor, can markedly improve outcomes for the patient, improve the quality of life, and actually decrease mortality. So I want to thank you so much for joining me today and allowing me to present a very comprehensive story in the management of COPD. It has changed management's dynamic. I hope you found this program useful in your practice, and I wish you the very best, and thank you. This activity is certified by PVI, Peerview Institute for Medical Education. Remember to download the slides and practice aids. Thank you for listening. Download materials and complete the post-test for instant credit at peerview.com forward slash XVQ 860. This educational activity is supported by an educational grant from GSK.